0: Welcome to This Food Thing Podcast. This is the place where we talk about our relationship with food, whether it is friend or foe, easy or less so, and how it affects our behavior. Here's today's episode. Welcome back to Love This Food Thing Podcast. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Gracie Carpenter. Gracie contacted me a while back. I was very moved by her email, so I'm going to read it by way of her introduction. This is part of what Gracie wrote. I grew up with alcoholic parents, eventually moving to the care of my grandparents. Shortly after my mother's death by suicide, I fell rapidly and violently into the clutches of anorexia. I was hospitalized for a year and in six different institutions, one of which saved my life after a near fatal collapse. The road to recovery has been a long one. I have since lost my father, my best friend, and most recently her father, who was like a second dad to me. I'm 23 years old and want to share my experience of going through intense trauma at such a young age. One day, Gracie will write her memoir, but until that time, she wishes to share her story in the hope that it will offer strength and inspiration to other sufferers. Gracie, welcome to Love This Food Thing podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I didn't have my glasses on when I read that. (laughs) I nearly nearly fluffed your beautiful I'm gonna drag this paper out here I nearly fluffed your beautiful email which I yes I found incredibly moving and I can't believe that you've been through all of that yeah at 23 and you're upright and glowing because I've just seen you on camera
1: (laughs) yeah it's been it's been a lot um I think it's it's weird because obviously lost my mum at such a young age and I think as you go through everything in your own life, you sort of forget how big it is. I'm I'm quite bad at doing that. I I sort of belittle what I've been through, and it's only been when I've sort of seen therapists and, and gone through everything, and even they've just been absolutely baffled. Um, I can't believe you've gone through all of that um, at your age. Um, do Do yeah. you think
0: that's some? Do you think that's also a, a coping mechanism and 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 something that happens while you? Because obviously you can't process all this stuff immediately. It's just too much.
1: Yeah, I think I think the processing. I think, you know, when I was so, so much younger and when I first lost mum, I was thrown all these grief self-help books and they all paint it to be so linear and actually it's so messy and I mm-hmm. think I'm going to probably be processing all of it probably for the rest of my life. Um, yeah. And I think... I think I'm someone that if I got up every morning and reeled off a list of things that had happened, I wouldn't be able to get up. Um, So instead I I sort of try and find the positives. Obviously that's very idealistic and it's impossible sometimes, you know, I have had really, really low patches um, where it has seemed sort of insurmountable. Um, But I do think that it's important not to get caught up and wallow too much in what is wrong um, because, that sort of leads to falling darker and deeper i think how old were you when your mum died uh, i was 12 um, 12
0: and yeah. were you living with her
1: i was so i moved in with my grandparents when i was twi- um 10 right. um so for the first 10 years i lived with my mum and dad they had a very very unconventional relationship okay um she was um 30 years younger than my dad yeah um and he was an ex met police officer um at and a functioning Mm. alcoholic and I think he had been that way for a number of years and Mm. he was also very very abusive Mm. um to my mum often in front of us as children Mm. Mm. um and I think that was something that I only really processed as I got older because obviously at that age I'd only ever known that um and I think I remember just thinking maybe this is what every mum and dad does like maybe every this is what every parent situation is like sure and it was only as I got older and I sort of became i I'm probably into adulthood and i sort of looked back at what i'd seen and and realized oh that was actually terrible um and that made it harder as well because my dad died when i was 18 um right. and i think at that age i I'd, I'd started to process things that i'd i'd seen and that had made our relationship quite tricky um in the later years because it, i'd sort of come to understand um how what he'd done and how he'd behaved
0: yeah and then i guess Maybe if you'd had 20 more years together, the
1: story yeah. between
0: you and your dad or how you felt about him, feel about him might be different just because of just courtesy of time, really.
1: I think so. I mean, in an ideal world, but he was um, unfortunately suffering with Alzheimer's at that time. Right. Um, and because obviously he was a lot older, so he was in his 70s when he died. Okay. Um, but he had latterly forgotten who I was, um, oh. which in itself was another sense of grief, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was a horrible thing because I think with Alzheimer's, we tend to have the stereotype that people just categorically forget who you are. But with my dad, sometimes even latterly, he would know exactly who I was straight away. Um, and other times he would have no idea. So I would sort of go in visiting, getting my hopes up each time. And yeah. obviously that was horrible because sometimes I'd be thrilled and he'd know who I was straight away and we'd talk. And then other times he'd, he'd say, who are you? Um, and I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm your daughter and he'd say, oh, I didn't know I had, I had a daughter. Um, and obviously that's, that's really painful because it's, it's almost like you've lost someone before they've gone. Yes. Um, which, which is a different type of grief. I think that's very difficult to process. Yes, of course. Of course. Well, you're, you're right. Grief actually
0: is a process, isn't it? It's a big smorgasbord.
1: Let's talk
0: about, because I could go wildly off a tangent now, (laughs) talk about everything that you've just mentioned and we will do that but I want to talk about your food and eating yeah so let me ask you the question and then we can ignore it and go from there how would you describe your relationship with food now would you describe it as a friend or a foe
1: so I was thinking about this earlier um Mm. just you know on reflection and I definitely think that food is a friend now um which is a Like, I feel hugely privileged to be able to say that because I know that a lot of people who suffer with anorexia never really recover that relationship. Um, I think I've learned to see it almost scientifically like it fuels me. Um, I need it to live. Um, And I also really enjoy it. And I always did enjoy food. That's why it was such a punishment not to eat. Um, I think I used to use it as a weapon a lot. And even now, when I'm really stressed, I think my default is to, to say to myself, oh, I just won't eat today um, almost as a sort of deprivation thing.
0: So when, um, when yes, yes, I'm, I'm with you and I'm very yeah. much with you. When did you start to, okay, so a couple of things have struck me. When did you start to deprive yourself and when did you start to understand that you were using it as a weapon? Did, did you use it? Or did you restrict your food when you were 10?
1: No, I didn't. So I'd always, always had a, a very healthy relationship with food. My family are massive foodies. So, right. you know, it was always a big thing. Um, my mom, you know, even, I, before she got ill, because she was ill for a number of years before she died, um, it was always a thing that we would eat together. And that's still a thing now, even as I'm an it. adult, I, I love to eat all together. Um, but yeah, so it, it was really rapid. Um, I didn't even really know what anorexia was. Um, I had the same sort of stereotype that it was just someone that wanted to be really skinny. Um, and that awful sort of, oh, do you just want to be a model or do you just want to look good? Um but it was only really until mum, uh, when mum died. Um, and within, I would like to say, five months, I was near, near death. It was so rapid. Um, very, so this very is age 12? Age 12. Age 12. Uh, so mum died when I was age 12 and I turned 13 just the summer before, um, after mum died. So it was just after my 13th birthday that I started really, really aggressively uh, restricting. And within a few months, um, I was, I was hospitalised. Do you
0: know what you were trying to resolve? What feelings you were trying to resolve? Because we know it isn't about food. We know it isn't about being a model or losing weight. We know it's about your feelings, whether you're able to manage your feelings and your relationship with yourself. Do you know what was going on in hindsight? Are you still working that out?
1: I think it was a control thing, and I know I remember hearing someone say that, and feeling so relieved that I wasn't strange, um, because you know now I know that anorexia is hugely about wanting to take control of things that aren't uh, under your control. Mm. Um, I think the way I see it now, and sort of looking back to my thought process, I felt angry that I couldn't have done something to stop my mum right. dying.
0: Right, is that um, where the weaponization of it comes in? I think
1: so. I think there was so much pent-up anger, mm. um, and it, it's really strange now. But looking back, it seemed like a normal, rational solution just to stop eating. It seemed re- it seemed to really make sense in my head. Well, that here's was the best way.
0: Here's the thing. I think it is a rational response because yeah. you're in an irrational situation. I'm sure lots of people would disagree with me, and they can.
1: Mm. I yeah. think it's
0: a uh, it's a, it's a, it's a method, it's a method of coping, isn't it? And, um, when you feel so out of control and life is conspiring seemingly against you, yeah, then it, it makes complete sense.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of, I remember the first time a therapist said that to me and I nearly fell off my seat. I was like, you're telling me that it makes sense <laughs> right. to starve myself. But actually I, I understand that now, I think, cause I, you know, my brain was not fully developed in any way. And I think, I remember just feeling safe. I remember when I didn't mm. eat, I felt, I felt weirdly powerful. Yeah, I was um, just about
0: to ask you if you felt mm, invincible or powerful. I did.
1: I felt that nothing could touch me. And I remember I would do weird things like buy, uh, like my watch, my family buy these huge pastries and just sit and eat nothing, and I would feel like a sort of superhero, which is so distorted. But I just remember feeling so powerful um, because they were all eating and they were all gonna. Um, get fat and I wasn't um, I I'm not essentially well yes that's
0: the sort of external bit isn't it I know I, mm. I, no, I'm just struck by the the passing of your mum and yeah. the the energy the you know the loss of energy when someone dies mm. and then I'm struck by you sitting at the table and everyone's eating and they're mm. energizing themselves Yes, and you're aligning yourself with your mum.
1: Yeah. I think it was definitely a way of reinvigorating myself in a sense. I think I felt on this, on this destructive path, it was exciting and there was adrenaline and it was a way of feeling something. Um, whereas realistically, I think I was just totally numb, like physically. Um, but it it was, it was the only way I felt sort of alive at that stage. Right, um, and I think it was easier for me to shut off and get tunnel vision and, and retreat into anorexia than watch everyone around me because I think that was the first time I'd seen Granddad cry um oh, about you from, uh, well about mum um oh. and, and also in general, like you know i I'd grown up with them, but i'd n- I'd not really seen them to that level of emotion, and that was really scary as well, yeah um because they'd always been so stable for me right. um. And I think, obviously, my upbringing with mum and dad wasn't at all. Um, so I remember being really scared when I first saw granddad like sobbing. Oh. Um, and I think, in order for me to cope with that, I was like, I'm just going to retreat into anorexia, not not see anyone, um, just not eat, and I'm just going to do that, and it's going to be really easy, and it's just going to sort everything out. How, um,
0: did, how did? Sorry to interrupt you there. No, that's how fine. Did, how did? Um, I did all the time. Yeah. How did your grandparents cope with you not eating?
1: I think. It was, um, obviously it was just torturous. I think it was torturous for me as well because I could see that it was it was destroying everyone around me as well. Um, but I, it, the way I tr- we talk about it sometimes now as well and the way I try and describe it is that I didn't feel like it was me doing it. I felt mm-hmm. like it was someone doing it to me and forcing me to hurt everyone else, but I couldn't stop it.
0: Did you have because- a, a, a smidge of if I'm going down, I'm going to take everyone else with me?
1: it's it's really difficult because I think I obviously saw that they were hurting but I also was convinced and you know I heard the eating disorder was just telling me that no one cared so it was a really weird like dilemma sort of moral dilemma because I could see that they were crying and upset and obviously when my friends would come and visit me in hospital a lot of them would cry because I was so unwell but I also then had lived with this voice that told me every single day that you know no one really cared about me, um, that no one no one would care if I died. I don't know why you're even entertaining that thought, Grace, and it would tell me all these things. Um, So I was, I think, I just remember being very confused all the time because the external was so different from the internal, um, and that was really confusing for me.
0: Uh, Absolutely, in hospital. So you Mm -hmm. were admitted. Did you? Did your grandparents take you to hospital? Did a were you sectioned? How did that happen? And your descent into anorexia, did your brain just switch over and you started losing copious amounts of weight and couldn't stop?
1: Yeah, it was I mean, yeah, so the weight was just absolutely falling off me and I just I think of it as almost being on like a treadmill, just like Mm. going further and further and further and further and getting further away from everyone around me. But I didn't care and it felt good. Yeah. Um, which is really weird looking back now. Um but it felt really really good. Yeah. Um and I think the thing is when I was younger I was always very slim and slender anyway. Um so grandma always says she, she remembers initially it wasn't that alarming the weight loss because it wasn't like I was going from being like overweight to underweight. Okay. But I think there was one moment, and I remember it really well, where I came down in like a vest top because I used to wear a lot of baggy clothing, mainly because I was cold, but also because okay. I didn't want anyone to see me. Of course. Um, and I came down in a vest top, and I remember that, that her face and grandma said, oh, "Oh gosh, you look so thin," and I was really shocked um, because obviously I was convinced that I was this. I was very. Fat and you know, I had that in my head all the time, and I remember that really, really shocking me, and, and that she'd noticed. And then I think from then on, she was very aware that it was becoming a problem, um, because before that, I'd, I'd been very secretive. I'd been at school and just hid my lunches a lot, um, and I wouldn't eat the whole day, and then I'd eat dinner. So I think they didn't really notice it being a problem until probably it was too late. Um, but that's that was you know due to me being secretive. Um, and then, yeah, so I, I went to the doctor initially um, and they, they sort of diagnosed me with anorexia. Um, but at that point they said, come back in a week and if you've lost more weight, we'll admit you. Which is just to me quite baffling, really. Um, and I saw that as a mission uh, in my head. I was like, okay, how much weight can I lose in a week? Ah, absolutely. Because um, it felt like they were challenging me almost because I was yeah. so disordered by that point. Um, and I came back in a week. And they were really alarmed. um, And they said, goodness, we're going to have to admit you. And by that point, I was very frail and on bed rest. So I just, you know, looking back, I think, why on earth did they say that? Um, And, you know, I know know it's no use blaming anyone, but it seems such a weird concept. And I know people still are faced with that now uh, in 2022, that they have to lose more weight and get to a certain BMI to be admitted, which I've never agreed with. Um, And I think it's really dangerous because it's almost challenging someone that's already disordered, to just go further into it.
0: Um, I agree with you. I agree with you. We're going to
1: take a quick break.
0: Hi, welcome back to Love This Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Gracie Carpenter. I just put a cough sweet in my mouth, Gracie, and then (laughs) realised I couldn't speak. So I'm now holding it in my hand. (laughs) Anyone at home who wants that image? (laughs) So you're in hospital. Um, Yeah. mm, 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 mm. You get admitted to hospital. Yes, we've just done the how ridiculous that you have to have lost so much weight to be admitted or considered anorexic that label yeah. so you're in hospital you said that you were on bed rest before you went into hospital can you walk
1: so at this point um not really know if I stood up I remember everything going black um so I, I was very very frail at this point um and, yeah, I just remember feeling very, very dizzy. I don't really remember that much. And to be honest, there's probably about a period of six months that's very, very, very blurry to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm, and it's, it's so strange because I think now I'd be so alarmed if I was – getting out of bed and, and everything was going black, but it felt almost like I was winning then. Um, yes. Because it, it, it was like, oh, they've challenged me to this mission um, of how much destruction I can do to myself. And I, I do think looking back, it was always about being unkind to myself. Um, it, you know, it, it was never about, it was never really about weight or how I looked because when I was that ill, I, I didn't look at myself anyway. I was in bed all the time. It wasn't like I was staring at mirrors. I think it was always just a self-destructive element. And I think even now I still, that's still my default and I'm still working on it um, because I still, you know, get quite cross with myself or, you know, I'm the first person if there's a disagreement or if something goes wrong or if I make a mistake, you know, I'm still learning not to Go into this cycle of oh I'm awful I, I'm you know the worst person ever and I'm lucky that a lot of my friends have known me for so long and are able to sort of talk me through that and say Grace like it doesn't matter everyone makes mistakes everyone you know no one's perfect um, I think that'll always be something that I have to work on um, because you know everyone that knows me says I'm I've always been hard on myself um, and I think yeah that's probably a product of of, of the eating disorder
0: and also. You had a challenging start, right? To witness your parents at war war like that and your mum to be absent through her alcoholism and an an abusive dad. Um, You are powerless as a child in that situation. No wonder you were resting back control and triumphant about it.
1: Yeah, I think definitely it, it makes a lot more sense in hindsight. I think, obviously when I was going through it, I was so young and I didn't really understand anything I found my emotions almost too much for my brain mm-hmm. development at that time mm-hmm. and I remember being feeling so different from my friends right. because they were all having sort of these normal I mean I was out of school for 2 years were so you? I was yeah um Gosh. and managed to fast track my GCSEs and complete them at the same time as everyone else wow. um So I've, I've always been, I think that's why I'm still so proud that I got my degree at the same time as everyone else as well, because obviously I missed that massive chunk of, of schooling. Amazing. Um, Yeah. I I think that was definitely, I remember crying all day when I got my (sighs) GCSE results. Um, (laughs) And I remember even my teachers, I've been so lucky that my teachers were uh, still some of my friends, actually. Um, But I remember my headmaster crying um, and saying, you know, we were thinking of ways that we might have to to tell you that you may not have got the grades that you wanted, but you've just done amazingly. And that was definitely a a sort of, I really wanted to prove to myself and everyone that I could do it. And I remember I was so stubborn and I was like, I'm not going back a year. I will do it. And um, my friend described it as... Turning that sort of willpower to destruct to a positive way.
0: Absolutely. And
1: I thought that was the best thing. I remember her writing me a card and, and saying that. And I'll always remember that because I've always had this willpower, even as a child. I've always been very confident, very, you know, stubborn to an extent, but known what I want, known that I want to achieve things. And I think obviously anorexia was just, it almost got diverted the wrong way.
0: I um, I concur I can relate to that and I think if you do switch it let's think just see it as a kind of energy flow yeah going in the in a, in a direction that's not helpful and you yeah. switch it to the helpful direction it makes you very resilient very powerful very disciplined yeah. very able because it takes a lot of commitment to be anorexic and to restrict and to not eat it takes a huge commitment because you're going against everything that you or your fundamental needs
1: exactly yeah it, it's it's and I think as well it's I really relate now to how difficult it is for people to understand. I remember all I, I wanted when I was ill was for someone to understand me. What and did you want them to understand? I wanted them to understand, like, I don't know. I think I, I struggled mainly because I don't think, I think people didn't believe or couldn't, couldn't understand how I saw myself as, as fat when I was so, so unwell. And I, I think because I didn't understand that myself, all I wanted was for someone to give me reasons. Can you give me a reason why I'm I'm not eating? Can you give me a reason why I'm scared of eating? And no one could. And obviously no one really can because there's, there's not one single reason why someone gets unwell with an eating disorder. But I remember all I wanted was for someone to just like scoop me up and tell me why it was all happening and no one could and I got frustrated. Um, but Do- I think sorry.
0: Go on. No, 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 go on. I just going to you a as well, question. I
1: think it's, it's sort of like a, maybe a lack of like, you know, obviously I'd lost my mum and all I wanted yeah. was for like a maternal figure to like nurture me and, and care for me. And I think it just felt like there was so much that was wrong that I couldn't work out. And I just wanted someone to give me like a, a notebook with reasons why everything had, had happened. Um, I,
0: think, I think also, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think also in the face of trauma, such as the loss of, the loss of your mum. yeah. To then not eat and you talk about being numb. To Mm -hmm. not eat is, um, is a, is an extension of that. And if you, 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 you said just now that you're scared of eating because uh, on, at some level I'm, I'm guessing the thought of eating again would mean that you were partaking of life and to partake of life, you were going to have to feel these feelings and you're going to have to move through them. And I imagine that was terrifying
1: yeah really really scary and I think um, I think as well because uh, you know I was in six different hospitals it's, it's a very long story, but there was, several of them were pediatric wards until I eventually ended up in in the eating disorder ward. And I think when you're in an eating disorder, ward, I was very lucky that I mean some of the girls I, we always say will be sisters forever you know mm-hmm. some of them I haven't seen physically for years yeah but when you go through that alongside people and you're all so young, Like, we'll always have a bond that you can't really explain. Yeah. Um, But I think, yeah, when when you're in that environment, it's so easy to forget that that's not normal. It's so abnormal. Like, all these girls around you and, you know, all of us are measuring food and we've got all these strange behaviours and none of us will sit down and, you know, you get so wrapped up in it that when – I remember when I sort of had visits home, it was really – strange because everyone actually wanted to eat food and I, I remember thinking oh that's that's bizarre and everyone was eating food at different times and no one was arguing about what they were eating and everyone was it was just so normal and I remember that divide was was really really strange and it was terrifying because I remember thinking how am I going to bridge the gap mm. how am I ever gonna exist in somewhere that's not what I've become accustomed to and what feels safe now. Not
0: an eating disorder ward.
1: Yeah. And it felt really safe. And I did become quite institutionalised. Oh, I'm sure. Um, I'm I didn't sure. want to go. I, did, I remember saying openly, I don't want to leave this hospital. I'm happy here. I'm comfortable. I'm safe. Right. Um Because the thought of normality and the thought of, of ever being normal seems so far away from me.
0: So, okay. So you're 13. Yeah. Plus five months. You were in hospital for six months.
1: So I was in hospital for a year.
0: You were in hospital for a year? Sorry, I was. Yeah. Um, so what? I mean, obviously, it's huge. But what got you out? What? 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 What sort of switched in you? Was it a gradual process? Were there any pivotal moments? I'm sure there were. There were. It was. There was all of it. But what made you start to get well? Because not everyone gets well, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were two. Two big moments that I I say, right, always contributed, and they were they were literally life changing moments, almost like um, film scene moments. I would say. Um, yes. I
0: love a life. I love a life changing moment, a light bulb moment. Go on, tell us. Yeah,
1: and I I, I would think of them, you know, as redefining. Even now, it, it almost gives me goosebumps. But the first mm. one was um, it would have been. So it would have been the first month that I was admitted to the eating disorder ward, um, and at this point I'd been I'd had an NG tube for about two months, so um, I was sort of being fed through that. Um, yeah. And it got to a point where, when I was first admitted, I was so unwell that I was categorically refusing to eat or drink, um, and it got to the the awful point where I was sectioned and, unfortunately, um, this is really horrible and quite distressing, but restrained to be fed um which is obviously a point that is very very drastic and and terrifying um but I was so intent on not eating that it took a whole team of people um to try and to try and feed me basically
0: do you remember Um, that or is that part of your thing that part of the sort of yeah not, not remembering it
1: it's a weird blur and I remember feeling almost like an animal Um, quite animalistic and and weird that these these team of people sort of looking through my door, you know, waiting to sort of I don't know, strap me, it felt very, very barbaric, I understand that they had to do that to keep me alive obviously but it was, Mm -hmm. you know, it's something that I would never ever wish on anyone Um, but yeah. And it got to a point where they were so, you know, I was just becoming so unstable and, um, I was fighting so much that, you know, they were really, really worried about my physical health. Um, so they admitted me to the pediatric ward. Um, this was St George's hospital in London. Mm -hmm. Um, so miles away from home, um, in Devon. Um, Yes, which is where
0: I'm from. We did that chat before, didn't we? Yes. Yeah. um, I keep interrupting you. Your life is the moment. Go. No,
1: that's absolutely fine. Um, So, yeah, so I got to the paediatric board and I think, I mean, that is a total blur to me because I was so unwell at that point physically. I just, I don't remember, I remember people visiting and, and I remember granddad reading to me, but I don't really remember what was going on. I was in and out of consciousness a lot. Um, and it got to, to a point where I'd got up to use the commode, so I wasn't allowed to talk to the toilet because I was too weak. Um, and I got up to use the commode next to the bed. And I remember it so well. I was trying to say to the nurse, I can't see, but no words were coming out. Um, And I remember I was so desperate because I I felt like I was going to pass out, but nothing was coming out. And I remember looking at her and she thankfully realised that I was, you know, I couldn't really say anything and I was very giddy. And I just, everything went black. Um, And... What happened next was just, it was the typical, you know, you hear all the, the, the near-death experience things and they sound so far-fetched, but it was exactly like it. Uh, I, I sort of remember distinctly being out of my body mm. and I saw this almost piercing light, honestly, exactly the way that people describe it. it was, it's so strange. And mum was there. Um, obviously, mum had died um, a year before, but she was there and I said, please, I just don't want to do it. Can I come with you? And I was talking to her, I was like, please, I don't, I really can't carry on. I'm so tired. Please, can you take me with you? And she was like, no, you're not coming. And I was like, but why? And she said, you, you, you're not coming with me. You have to go back. And in that sort of moment, I remember everything was just like dark. And suddenly I was sort of back in the room And there were hands all over me and there was all these people around me and grandma was there and and she, and they were saying like, squeeze my hand if you can hear me. And I just had no idea what was going on. But I remember grandma saying, oh my God, thank God, thank God she's alive." Um, and I found out, you know, years later that apparently my heart, heart had stopped basically, or my heart rate had gone so low, um, that, 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 you know, I nearly died. Um, but that was definitely, definitely a moment that I'll never ever forget.
0: Wow, we're going to take a quick break. Hi, welcome back to Love This Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Gracie Carpenter. Gracie, I don't know why I just said Gracie Carpenter. It's Gracie because we've introduced you many times (laughs) now. And Gracie just told her fantastic story about her first life-affirming moment of when she began to shift out of her anorexic state. But it took a... a near-death experience, right?
1: Yeah, I think I think that was a moment where I realised I'm not invincible, mm. and everything that I'd been told by the the voice in my head mm. that you know nothing could ever hurt me. You know, all you need to do is be thin and you'll be happy. And I remember thinking that well, that's not true. I've been lied to.
0: It d- oh, um, that's very that's very clear. Did you also when you? Came, not came round, but when you were starting to feel a little bit better, did you did your desire to be here and to live and have a life? Did that start to kind of just gently peek its head through the surface?
1: I think it was definitely delayed because of how physically unwell I was. Okay. So I don't think I was well enough to even process anything at that point. I was just in, unconscious after that, just you know, being being fed. Um, were you? by the nasogastric tube. So I was in there for probably another few weeks. Were you unconscious for a few weeks? I wasn't, I was in and out. I just remember being in and out of sleep. Um, Not really. I remember seeing people's faces, but not, I didn't, I don't really remember anything about that. Um, But yeah, I think it it was weird. I I sort of had a lot of dreams that were all almost about my life. So it was almost like I was processing it unconsciously without being, Conscious, um, yes, because yes. my brain obviously wasn't well enough to to, to be eyes open and alert. Um, but I definitely remember a lot of thoughts going through my brain. Um, I just wasn't well enough to articulate them verbally. I think.
0: Do you think um, lots, lots of your trauma got healed then, when you were unconscious?
1: I think, I think a lot of a lot of it went round in my head, and I think that was definitely. a a turning point but I think people think of pivotal moments as like oh a eureka moment like a light bulb moment then suddenly you're fine or like that's changed everything instantly and that's never happened it's it's like it's been a it's been pivotal in the sense of shifting the energy or the direction but it's it's taken a lot of time it's not just been oh now I'm now I'm going to change my mind um it's taken a lot of other things to fall into place but it, it was definitely a moment for me, um, and definitely one that, that sort of changed changed the flow, I, I suppose. What was your second moment, which you alluded to before? Yeah. Um, so this is actually really unconventional, and I think it was a moment that people thought would set me back a lot. Um, so it was that would this would have been a few months after after that um, near death experience, and I was back on the ward, the eating disorder ward. I was still on bed rest. Um, I think I was just just starting to eat food again, like actual food. Okay. Um, so I was a little bit stronger, but I still wasn't really, you know, I hadn't been out for walks or anything. I wasn't really up, getting up from my bed. Um, but I remember basically that the, the weekend before this this event, grandma and grandad came up from Devon mm. and they told me that my best friend was in hospital, uh, my best friend Jemima. She's actually... Um, now the the record holder for the number of lives saved through organ donation um, and they've got um, her parents set up a trust so oh she's, they've done amazing work um, but at this point obviously wow. they they sort of withheld the gravity of the situation um, and I don't blame them for that you know I was so fragile I think they just you know I think if I'd known how bad it was I would have just sat with it and worried and, and I, I do agree that, that that was the right decision to not really tell me at that point mm. Um, but obviously, I just thought, oh, I'll write her a card, hope she gets better. But she' you know she'd been my best friend since we were born. So we'd grown up together, our mum, so her mum is best friends with my mum. um and her sister is best friends with my sister. So we were like a little a little family unit growing up. Um, and you know, obviously, I was a bit worried, but in my head, I was I, I thought, oh, people go to hospital all the time. It might not be that bad. Um I'll just write her a card and hope she gets well soon. And it wasn't until a few days later, um, I received a a text from my friend at school saying, sorry for your loss. And my heart dropped and I thought, I've not heard anything. What's going on? But I knew in my heart, I knew in my heart that she died. Obviously that's all it could have meant, but I was just telling myself, no, 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 it can't be that, can't be that. So I rang grandma. I said, grandma, what on earth is going on? Tell me. And she said, Grace, please, like, can you just wait? I'm coming up tonight. I want, like, can I, I want to be with you. And I said, no, tell, I was so angry. I was like, you have to tell me, has Jemima died? And she said, yes. And I remember just falling to the floor, um, like collapsing and just sort of wailing like an animal. Mm. Um, And because it was such a shock. Um, And apparently, you know, I, I found out later that she'd had, had a brain aneurysm. So she just walked upstairs, collapsed and, and never woke it up again. Um, and I remember just sort of crawling to m- back to my bed. And I remember even, I remember even seeing the nurse's face and, and how, you know, they just looked sick with worry. And I remember thinking, okay, this is actually big. Like, it's not just me thinking it, it is really big. And I remember a shift in my mind then, because I was like, Basically, she'd always, always wanted to live. She'd always wanted to be a writer. She'd always been so excited by the prospect of living, getting older. And the weirdest thing was that she knew she was going to die, um, which is really strange. I remember she wrote me this letter um, before a few weeks before she died. Um, and she'd said in the letter that she'd seen my mum. And I remember thinking, she's gone crazy, my mum's dead. Um, but she said, it, I knew that she was... A ghost, but my mum had come to her as a sort of spirit and said, "It won't hurt, but you're going to be with me." Um, which obviously is very haunting now, yeah. uh, because it's obviously it's like a premonition that she was going to die. Yeah. And I, in the moment I found out that she died, I I flashed back to when I'd last seen her and she'd visited me in hospital in December, and this was March that she died. And I remember feeling really uneasy after she left because. She was speaking in a very final way, as if she was never going to see me again. Um, So I remember, obviously, you know, I was I was really really frail, and I remember her crying, but she was sobbing, and she wasn't someone to sob, especially not in front of people. And I remember thinking, it's really it it seems unnatural that she's reacting so aggressively, or you know, so so emotionally. And she said to me, "If you do anything in life, get better for me and do it for me." And I remember saying to her, Jemima, what are you talking about? Like, we're always going to be friends. Like, we've always been friends and we always will be. But I remember she was so, just so, like, abrupt with it. She was like, "You you have to get better. And I think looking back at that, you know, in that moment, I sort of felt like I cannot betray her. I cannot carry on doing this. I can't, you know diet from this illness I have to get better because I felt like it was a betrayal if I didn't to her
0: amazing did you see your mum around that time again in any way
1: um I I felt her a lot Mm. um so I've often associated the rain with my mum um because it rained a lot when she died and even now I'll often sit in the rain because I find it very healing yeah um and I almost find it a way to sort of recalibrate and, and de-stress. It's a bit like yoga for some people, I suppose. Um, and I know there are a lot of times when it rains and I would often to sit out and, and, and talk to them both, and I still do now. Um, but that was definitely a, a moment where I thought, you know, and even now when I'm really, really low, I'm like, I can't give up this life that she wanted to live so much.
0: I'm struck so much by your first loss of life or your exper- first experience of losing your mum. And you deciding yeah. not to eat and therefore to deprive yourself of life. And then your second big loss of life brings yeah. you back. It's yeah. a really beautiful symmetry, albeit yeah. painful and horrendous and, and everything that, ha- how we feel when we lose people that we love. There's a beautiful symmetry there, isn't there?
1: Yeah. And I, I also always felt, I remember, you know, I used to write extensive diaries and Mm. I always felt that my illness was a way for me to understand what my mum went through because she suffered a lot with depression. She was in and out of of mental health units for for years before she died. And I'd always felt angry at her. Um, And I remember it almost brought me a weird sense of peace feeling that low and that depressed and that hopeless because I got to understand what she felt. And in that way, I made peace with that and started. I, I almost—I I hate the word "forgave" because you should never have to forgive someone that that takes their own life. I don't—I don't believe that. But I—I I, I did hold a grudge against her for a long time. I was like, "How could she leave me? Yeah. Um, how could she do that?" And actually, mm-hmm. I came to realise that it wasn't a conscious choice, um, and that she'd run out of options. And that was really healing for me to understand that and almost align with her. Um, and and get rid of some of that anger that I felt because I just understood. Do
0: you know what I'm thinking? Because normally yeah. I wrap the interview up with, "What are your five favourite foods that you take to an island?" Yeah. <laughs> it seems really ridiculous to ask you that. And I'm also thinking that we've only part way through your story. Yeah. So how about we do part two? Yeah. And we finish at this point. And we pick it up when we yeah. next meet and we will finish at the point of you starting to get better. Yeah. And starting to eat and starting to process some of your emotions and starting to come back to life really. Yeah. And starting to feel again. Yeah. And not being flawed by it. Yeah. Is that is that a good place to stop? That sounds really good, yeah. Amazing, Gracie, it's, you're amazing. I'm in, oh. I'm in awe. I'm in awe. I'm in awe. Okay, so yeah, so watch out for Gracie Carpenter, part two. Gracie, thank you so much for sharing this, this, this that, thus far of your
1: story. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, it's an honour.
0: And because you're a singer, and we did this with another guest, Stella Angelica, we're going to put one of your songs on as an outro, if that's okay. Thank you. Yeah, that's perfect.
1: I've made up my mind. Don't need to think it over.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Love This Food Thing. If you'd like to reach me, I'm on Instagram at Love This Food Thing, or you can head to our website, lovethisfoodthing.com. Join our community. Everyone's welcome. Catch you in the next episode.
1: But if I tell the I'll never say enough cause it was not said to you And that's exactly what I need to do if I